So, Matt. Awesome news today about these planets. And they're called Trappist-1. Right. Which is a weird name because it sounds like they're beavers. Oh, see, I was thinking there's a religious order called the Trappist monks. <laughs> that's a, that's what makes, that's what I think of. Right, the Trappist monks. Yeah, yeah. So it's named after the telescope. So Trappist is the name of the telescope, um, and uh, it's typical to name astronomical objects after either the uh, the device that was used to observe them or the name of the catalog and such. Right. right. So so Trappist is both the telescope. And the uh, system. And the monk. And, and the monks. And <laughs> yes. the beavers. And also, it's a trap. It's a trap. The Akbar. <laughs> yes. Yeah, these seven planets. One of them is a trap. Your job, find it. That's right. Well, the odds are pretty good that if there are seven planets, one of them is going to be a trap, right? Yes. Is it? Yeah. One thing we, we, we were chatting about before the show was um, how they announced these planets with magnificent drawings. Right. Which everybody, not everybody, mm-hmm. a lot of people might think, oh, that's what they look like. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what did they actually, what, what do we actually see? That's right. So what you actually see is, you know, so there's this horizontal line, a uh, line on a, a graph, and that graph is the intensity of light we're getting from that star. And every now and then, there will be a little dip in that line. And by the shape of that dip, by how wide it is and how deep it is and how long it lasts, you can infer that a planet is passing in front of the star. So that's the basic technique you use for this this sort of planet detection technique. It's like the, so, brightness, the brightness went down. Exactly it. And then you just infer, you write out the equations and you you try to figure out the size of the planet and how far away it is and stuff. Uh, What you actually see for seven planets is the fact that the light curve dips seven times. If you put it all together, it would just be a line with seven little dips in it. Clearly, uh, that's enough information to invade. Them. Yes. <laughs> well, it could be, right? I yeah. mean, so that, that information, it's actually quite extraordinary that we can figure out things like the size of the planet, how far away it orbits, how fast it's going. Yeah. It's likely, you know, whether it's a gas giant or a rocky planet like Earth. That's pretty amazing. But just, you know, if you hold a press conference and you just point to that line with dips in it, that's not very exciting. No. Right. Well, to, and, to, to people who understand the line, it is. Well, see, that's an interesting thing is that you could, you know, there's there's a certain audience where you would put that picture up and the room would be full of gasps, right? People are like, oh, my God, look at that. Yeah. This is something interesting that happens with scientific data is, you know, an astronomer will point to that line and say, that's a planet. But your average person on the street will look at that and say, no, that's a line. Right. That's not that's not a planet in any sense. Right. So there's all this work that happens internally in a scientist's head to translate data into a thing. Right. Of course, they have an emotional connection to that line. Like if that line was your money. That's right. That's a good way to think about it. You'd you'd have a strong feeling about that. Uh, Yeah, that's right. So that's right. There are places where you would do that. Right. So your 
I don't know, your upload speeds on your Wi-Fi, yeah. right? You'd point to that and say, ah, oh, that's why I lost that game of Call of Duty. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right, yes. <laughs> because yeah. that line dipped. But this is sort of an extreme example where you go from a line, a bent line, to a beautiful painting full of colors mm. that show continents and clouds and oceans. But this happens uh, all the time. Like there's very little these days, there's very little scientific data that looks like what it's supposed to be. Yes. Even something like the, the images from the Hubble Space Telescope, right? They're beautiful and they're yes. gorgeous. But that's not actually the image that the telescope sends back from orbit. Right. Okay. Right? So good. This, is, a, this yeah. is another one of those questions I've always wanted to know. And even I, okay. I am a science nerd. I'm an astronomy nerd. But... Certain questions I just never got answered. Or maybe I never paid attention long enough to get the satisfactory <laughs> answer, which is, yes, so we see beautiful... We're, now we're talking about real photographs. We're not talking about the artist's conception. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's, we see, well, so-called real, real photographs. Right. And in, you know, on the web, or like a, there's a, that awesome site, uh, Astronomy Picture of the Day. Right? Yes, a yeah, it's a great site. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, everyone in their mind can imagine... Let's just imagine something simple like a spinning galaxy. Okay. It's a pinwheel. There is all kinds of colors in it. I'm in a spaceship. At whatever mm -hmm. distance I could see that normally. We understand the telescope blows it up, right? Or right. is looking closer, mm -hmm. like a zoom lens. Right. I still, uh, yeah, what would I see? Would I just see white stars or would I see all these colors? Well, it's an interesting question, and the answer is it varies from place to place. But uh, some of the most spectacular images, like of the, uh, you know, the famous picture of the, the sometimes called the Pillars of Creation, the mm -hmm. sort of stellar nursery, you've probably seen it before. Yeah. That picture is taken with an infrared camera. That's a camera, it's a digital camera, just like the one on your cell phone, say, mm -hmm. but that's sensitive not to the visual spectrum that we see but to the part of the spectrum we can't see. If you were an astronaut and you went up to the Hubble and you removed the digital camera and you stuck your head where the camera was and you looked, you would see nothing. It would be black. Oh, interesting. So, so these, are, these are like those night vision goggles. Exactly like that, right? The, so NASA gets, you know, a JPEG or something, you know, so some, yeah. some image file sent down from the telescope. and it has brightness information for each pixel in the frame. But it's the, that brightness is in the infrared. So it doesn't matter how bright an infrared source is, it still looks black to you. So obviously NASA can't just publish a black image, even, right. even though that's, that's the actual image that, that you would see. What you then do is you say, okay, the color differences that we normally see are due to wavelength differences within the visual spectrum. Let's just look at the wavelength differences within the infrared spectrum that we can't see, and we'll just assign them colors. You can't see two micron infrared radiation. Wherever two micron radiation pops up, we'll, we'll make that green. And wherever three micron radiation pops up, we'll make that red. Now, can I ask a dumb question? Is that sort of like saying the temperature at this this pixel 
mm-hmm. this part of the sky that I'm looking at, this little pixel here, is 32 degrees. Yep. And the next one is 33 degrees. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make 32 degrees blue and 33 degrees a little bit lighter blue. Yep, yep, exactly That's the same analogy. Right. It's the same sort of thing you do with like a weather map. Right. You look at the, the, the Doppler radar map and there's green patches and there's blue patches. There's no green patches on the sky. Right. Somebody says this density and you of clouds. Up, uh, is green. You have not been looking up under the right conditions. Well, I haven't been to New Jersey for a little bit. Right. <laughs> so this is called a false color image when you do this. There's a sense in which it's deliberately misrepresenting what you see. Right. There is no circumstance under which a human being will look at that nebula and see what that image is giving you. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's a pretty good representation. Right. You can you can distinguish the structures that are actually there. It's a kind of translation. Right. You're translating an image you can't see into one you can see. But that's a as a mathematician say a non-trivial task. You have ah. to make decisions, right? Yeah. If for no other reason, then we associate colors with different sorts of things, right? Red looks exciting and angry and dangerous and yes. blue is cool and relaxing. Whether you make your nebula red or blue will give you a totally different feel for what that thing is. And so are, are they uh, generally, what are they doing? Are the colors related to temperature? No, actually, it's there's a wonderful book on this called The Astronomical Sublime. Not to be confused with Kant's category of the astronomical sublime. I almost confused uh, it with that. Sorry. <laughs> it happens a lot. There are professional artists at NASA mm-hmm. whose job is to decide how to do this. That's right? a cool job. So, so it's actually an, an artistic decision, right? What makes it look beautiful? This book, The Astronomical Sublime, makes the argument that those decisions are largely framed by expectations we have about things like landscape painting. We're used to to dividing up the space in front of us in a particular way, a particular kind of aesthetic. So we've borrowed that from the landscapes we're used to here on Earth and apply that to the sky. Meaning like... Warm things are red and cool. Uh, yes, blue, or, or even things like orientation, uh, right? Yes. You could, there's, there's no obvious up or down to a picture of a nebula. We tend to pick orientations that make it look like, say, mountains or look like an ocean because we're, yeah, used, we're used to seeing that. A particular kind of substance, mm-hmm. a particular element will get a different color, right? Like hydrogen, they make red. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a standard way to do it in technical representations. Mm, that's right. Mm-hmm. So you'd say that, that's right. So hydrogen density is uh, above a certain value is red and you know, cobalt density above a certain variety is a uh, certain value is blue. But that's typically not how they do it for public relations photos. Oh. Are you saying that in a public relations photo, it's not even that red is the coolest area and blue is the or red is the hottest area and blue is the coolest area it's more like hey let's paint they're literally just like painting it that's exactly right it's like messing with um 
you know, the, the color filters on Photoshop or something until you get the kind of picture you want to see. Okay, that's crazy. Isn't that crazy? I never knew that. Yeah. I never knew that. Wow. The way the viewer can educate themselves and have a critical, um, what do we call it, uh, watch media critically or <laughs> what do we call that? Oh. Yeah, media, whatever. Media savvy? Yeah. Okay, yes. Media savvy astronomy fans. We should look at a picture. We see a beautiful picture. Cool. First, we save it to the desktop and we make it our wallpaper. Awesome. Okay. Secondly, we look at the caption and we see, does it say, what are the things it might say? Artist conception versus... That's right. Yeah. Artist rendering, artist conception. If it says something like that, then what happened was the scientists went and described this to a graphic designer, and then the graphic designer sat down with Photoshop and and made something from zero, right. and then showed it to the scientist and said, "Is that about right?" And the scientist said, "No, change that." And you know, it goes back and forth a couple of times. It's slightly different than the false color image, in which there's there's the original downloaded data. And then they're just figuring out ways to represent that data. That makes sense? Right. Okay. So we go back to our pinwheel galaxy in our mind. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful spiral of stars and gas. And it's got beautiful colors around it. Yep. Maybe the mm-hmm. edge is one color and then the middle is a different color. And it could be three or four different colors. One possibility is that the artist literally just painted that. Or... So that's one thing. And that probably would say artist conception, maybe? I mean, I, know I, would, art- I would imagine so. Yeah. Right. Right. But if it says false color, mm-hmm. that's actually, there is a scientific connection. Uh, that's right. That's, that's closer to the original data, uh-huh. I guess. That was less filtered through somebody's brain. Right. So false color. And then I might see the next level up in scientific certainty would be, well, wouldn't be called false color anymore, right? No matter what, it's got to be false color if what we're looking right. at is actually too dark for us to see with our own eyes right. mm-hmm. or too far away. So, again, if I went, if I, if I happen to go out and get close enough to this pinwheel galaxy mm-hmm. and I look out the window, now a galaxy I think I would see. Yeah, most galaxies you'd at least see. But you wouldn't see nearly as much as you see in the photograph. Right. Even in our own Milky Way. Like if you look at the Milky Way on a super clear night, not in New Jersey, right? Right. Colorado or something. Yeah. And you look up. The Milky Way doesn't look like a spiral, even even edge on, which is how we're seeing it. Right. Right. It's got these big blotchy patches. Yeah. And those patches actually aren't dark. That is, your, your intuition says that's a place where there's no stars, right. but that's not the case. It's actually that there's a big blob of gas there. It's just not hot enough to be giving off light in the part of the spectrum that you can see. Oh, so if you right. look at that, if you look at what appears to be darkness through an infrared camera, right. you will see a big bright blob. The perceived shape of the galaxy is going to look different, of any galaxy, is going to look different depending on what wavelength you're looking at. It's not that there's some bright structure there. It could literally be just extremely subtle differences of minute fractions of a degree. So for the listeners, I maybe some other time we'll talk more in depth about 
the cosmic background. Oh yeah, that's uh, a, that's a good radiation. That's, right. that's a good description of this. And actually, you know, there's another place where these same issues come up, and that's with things like MRIs oh. or CAT scans, right? because MRIs like infrared telescopes don't provide any visual information that you can see. The MRI machine just senses radio frequencies of a particular value. With the MRI, that's the big. That's you, the big you've you've heard I I I hurt my hip because of right. some extraordinary oh, athletic activity I was doing, like sitting too long. Yeah, and it turned out so I had to go to get an MRI, and that's where you lay down on the little bed and you go right. inside a gigantic tube which is a ma- like a gigantic round donut shaped magnet yeah and you hear these big clanking noises horrible noises wow right it's yeah. really quite a terrifying experience yeah. and then at the end of it they'll show you in your case they showed you an image and said that's your hip mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but again there's no place you could ever put your head to see that image so that image is just reconstructed by the computer and some technician said okay this this intensity of radio waves i'm going to make red and this intensity of radio waves i'm going to make blue right and again those those choices are totally arbitrary it's whatever the technician wants to emphasize in this particular picture so if they want to be looking at your cartilage they'll change the slider so it looks different and a really interesting place to see this is with brain scans too, right? So, so you get these brain scans where, you know, you'll the 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 image is this part of your brain is lighting up when you're looking at pictures of yeah. kittens, or something, right? Yeah. And the question is, so what color should I make that lighting up? It doesn't have any color, but I have to choose a color for the picture. If I pick red, it looks like I'm I don't know angry at the kittens. If I pick blue, then it looks like the kittens are relaxing me. This actually has real consequences. So, for instance, if I'm doing scans of people with schizophrenia Mm. and I want to say these structures in the brain look different in people with schizophrenia, what colors do I make those structures? Right. What's the right color for schizophrenia? Right. When you pick up Scientific American, you say, oh, schizophrenic brains are all yellow. Theoretically, the, the scientist doesn't have an emotional, well, they may have an emotional connection to these colors, but that's, anyway, they, they get beyond that because really they're just, they can tr- start translating that into useful information. Well, so that's right. As with like the, the data from the Hubble telescope, when doctors are using this for technical information, I don't think they much particularly care. Right what the, the colors are. They just need the numbers. But when the doctor shows you the picture of your brain and says, that's your brain, yeah. you're going to feel differently about it, depending on what yeah. color it is. Yeah, like. well, that's, that's an interesting thing, too. Very interesting. I actually had a student last year who, uh, when we were talking about this problem, decided to totally outflank the problem. And <laughs> instead of using color representation, he took one of these brain scan files and turned it into a, a 3D printing file so he printed out the brain scan. So instead of, lo- instead of looking at the intensity, you would feel it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was a really clever idea. Now, was, of, were they 
visually impaired or something or that was just no no he just he just wanted to in fact he's a he's a designer himself uh, so he loves yeah, yeah, yeah. uh he loves seeing things but he wanted to to think about because uh, we we translate these things like an mri into an image because we like looking at pictures and our brains have lots of neurons devoted to that task yeah but there's no reason that's the only sense you could use Right. So he wanted to say, well, what happens if you just use a totally different sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. To interpret this data. So um, just to sum up for a second, what we're talking mm -hmm. about here is we've stumbled into this fascinating area of, right. I would say, visualization or more friendly, even street worthy term like we're looking at stuff. Looking at stuff. Looking at stuff in space and in our bodies and all around in nature. Thinking about how somebody who has captured that image wants to show it to us. Now we know that they're, they're going to use it in whatever way they want. But what's interesting to us is because we don't happen to be in those labs. Hey, what does that do? And, and then how do we interpret that? I have always been fascinated. And at some point I, I want to meet him. I'm pretty sure he's still around. There is, uh, do you know about the blind astronomer? There may mm, be more I don't, than one. I don't think I do. No. So did you see the movie Contact? Sure. So in Contact, Jimmy Smits plays a character. Um, so Contact is about the SETI team, the Search for ex Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So they're, at the, they're working at the Arecibo, the gigantic Arecibo telescope, a radio telescope. And there's a character played by Jimmy Smits who is a blind astronomer. It's okay because he's a radio astronomer. Right. And... If you take one step further in learning, you, it's, it's, they don't like listen to the radio or listen to the waves. It's just they get uh, the telescope sees in the radio frequency. He was a, a real character. I saw that movie and I was like, oh, sure, a blind astronomer. That's really clever. That's cheesy. But he's a real person and he's really blind. And he was a computer genius who helped them, you know, create computer programs that allowed them to sift through the data to try to find whatever it was they, they might find. Colors, I believe, is his last name. And I was at a conference at Harvard once, a SETI conference. He came up and he spoke. He had like a tape recorder with him, and he, pl he actually played. He said, yes, we don't, listen we don't listen to the radio sounds that come out of the telescope scientifically. But you could, and then he played all these trippy sounds. Anyway, he, he told the story when he was a kid. His, he, he was blind, I, I believe, since birth, or at least since he was very, very young. Uh, somehow got interested in space, and his father got him kind of a tactile map, like a 3D, similar to what you were just talking oh, about. Oh, cool. Like, okay. um, you know, you could feel, so there, instead of stars, there were just bumps, you know, mm -hmm. on a surface. Sure. He could feel galaxies, and he could feel the, the images. Oh, that's cool. It's one thing for us to translate things that we can't see into things we can see. Right. But if you go into science fiction, for instance, you could imagine a species that is blind for whatever reason, right? Right. And, mm -hmm. and uh, how would they see the world? They would have totally right. different would, instruments, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, would they be aware that stars exist? Right. Right. If, if, if your main communication was smell... For instance, yeah. Would would the idea that there's something outside the atmosphere 
even occur to you? Right. I don't know. Right. Oh, yeah, it's totally bizarre. And in fact, whatever knowledge you got, you would have gotten there through just some crazy technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, suppose well, they right. eventually uh, learned, you know. That's right. So their equivalent to the thing we've been discussing would be a machine that translates light into smells. Yes. Yeah. Now we're talking. <laughs> and there's no reason you couldn't make such a thing. I mean, you could make such a thing for humans, too. Yes. Right. I don't know what that would smell like. Turning light into smell. Mm-hmm. A light smell. <laughs> a light odor. Sponsored yes, by Febreze. Right. But it's interesting. Hearing is, you know, I think, makes more logical sense as well as touch. Yeah, smell and taste are weird. Oh, so smell but, is, well, smell is, I'm not going to let go of the smell. Okay, go for it. Because this is a fabulous exercise. So let's imagine our pinwheel galaxy. Oh, yeah, right. And, you know, somehow they, they the, the smell people, um, the smellers, we'll call them, mm-hmm. planet smell, Figured out how to create something that can look, right? Who knows what they would call it. But basically, they invent a telescope. And it translates what it sees into smell. And so, you would hold something up to your face and you would, like, move it around and smell. Oh, well, actually, I I should say, this has been anticipated already. Um, You watch Futurama? Yeah. So, I think way back in the first season of Futurama, the professor invents a smelloscope. Oh. And it actually, that's right. So, it's shaped like a telescope, but then instead of an eyepiece, there's two little tubes that sort of insert into your nose. And, he, you know, they, they point it at different objects in the sky and they say, oh, Saturn smells like cherries and Jupiter smells like peaches. <laughs> and then the, the, where the episode gets fun is they, they uh, use this to discover uh, there's a giant ball of garbage hurtling through space at Earth. And and the professor has a little device that he hooks up to the uh, to the smelloscope called the funkometer. And that, that measures how intense the smell is. Uh, and I think this is one of the, the wonderful things that science fiction, and particularly Futurama, does so well, is, is take these totally off-the-wall questions. Say, what if you did, what if you had a funkometer? Yes. Right? What, how, would, how would that work? Wow, that's fantastic. You know, oh, we gotta look. Somebody must have built something. Someone in something. history has attempted to build a funkometer or a smelling telescope. Yeah, well, it's, a smell is hard to train but so yeah there have been attempts at making like electric noses oh for instance the problem is that we're just we haven't spent much time to we've got tons of technology for converting sounds into electrical impulses which right. is why you can hear me right? right but we haven't spent much time figuring out how to how to change smells into electrical impulses and partially that's because a smell is a thing right if, if, if you're smelling something it's because a molecule has mm-hmm. made its way into your nose so it's hard to know how best to, to translate that into signals, but so it's, it's point, being worked on. Yeah, at some point, they, they, I'm sure they can probably do something vaguely similar to it, where uh, if you stimulate the brain in the right place where smell is created, that, mm-hmm. I would think that would be good. Yeah, um, that would be the question. Yeah, but boy, those smell people, they, they really, their tech would be so high tech <laughs> in some ways. On the other hand, it'd be low tech because like possibly they would just have in their lab, they're just looking at basically pictures whatever they just have like all these little petri dishes full of all these different substances and they're like on top of a a sterno flame (laughs) and 
you know, whatever you're looking at it. Oh, yeah, that red, what we would see as red, that's supposed to smell like charcoal. And so then the little... Right. Mm -hmm. So you would just see these people leaning over these desks with uh, various... Alchem- like uh, something out of Harry Potter. All these potions mm-hmm. boiling. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And then that's right. And presumably, you know, you'd have smell some smell equivalent of the pixel. Right. How 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 small can you get a smell? Yes. Yes. Because you want high resolution. Well, a snixel. Yeah. A snixel. <laughs> you that's right. You'd have to have something like that. And and the the aliens would come to our lab and be horrified that our snixels are the size of you say a sterno container yes right they'd say oh that's awful and then they'd say but but you know you waste all this time on having millions of pixels but you've got six snixels yeah how 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 can you tell what's going on around you right so low resolution yeah this is like the worst jpeg ever your funk pegs are really Mm -hmm. rude okay well this is a great thing i think um uh, in part two of this uh, series of Smell-O-Vision, uh, mm-hmm. dogs would... Oh, uh, dogs, Dogs yeah, might be, right. you know, anything that has, like, super, super sensitive smell. Mm-hmm. They might, you know, if we had never come around, dogs or some other super smelling, uh, super sensitive olfactory yeah. uh, creatures, uh, sensitive creatures would come up with something. All right, well, that's great. I, I think we've gone... If we go any further, it's going to become obscene. I think that's probably so, right. And actually, I have to sign off because I have to go to a meeting soon. Yes. You have to present um, this new... <laughs> that's new right. Patent. You won't believe what we just figured yeah. out. <laughs> We're done. We're done. <laughs> okay. Matt, thank you. As always, totally fantastic talking to thank you and you. brainstorming. We'll talk again next week. Okay. Okay, Take Matt. Care.